Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Father in heaven, it's so awesome to be here this morning in this place, worshipping you. I ask and I pray this morning, I plead with you that Jesus may be seen. As we open your word, Father, may you open us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Today's message, essentially, since we've just done last week, Revelation chapter 11, quite naturally we go to 12, and that's what we're doing. We're in Revelation chapter 12 today. We're working through Revelation for those who haven't been here over the consecutive weeks that we've attended church. We've done Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, skip number 6, temporarily maybe. We're coming back to number 7 a little bit later. 8 and 9 were skipped because it's the trumpets and they're... They're not sermon material. We did 10, 11, and now we're on to 12. We're doing this in two parts because it's just too big to do it in one, one hole here. So today's message essentially is the great controversy part one. The great controversy is between who, church? It's between Christ and Satan. And we see it so clear and so evident in these passages that we're going to share this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open me with me to Revelation chapter 12. Um, before we start, I want to share with you guys a little bit of an illustration, um, a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a hobby because that's weird, something that I enjoy doing. I love listening to lovers talk to each other with their pet names. I find it really funny, actually. So you have a couple and they're talking to each other and they, have, they may call each other Snookums or Sweetie Pie. You know, it's really, really interesting that, that males will resort to this when they act so tough in front of their friends. You will not see a man talking to his wife like that in front of his friends, unless you do. You know, you may be the exception, but the general rule is a man will act tough until he's with his wife. Um, I find it really interesting listening to a lot of the pet names, the lovey-dovey pet names that people have for their partners. Now, I'm going to read out some. And as I read out these pet names, I don't want you to be offended if that is your pet name or you use that pet name. But I just want you to think for a moment, pet names usually, they aren't literal, okay? They aren't literal. It's kind of a term of endearment. It's not a literal thing that you're calling that person. Let me call out a few. Babe. How you going, babe? Now, when I think of the word babe... When you think of the word babe, what do you think of? I think of pig. Obviously, it's not literal. Sweet cheeks. Sweet cheeks? So, obviously, they've put sugar or something on their, 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 their cheeks. I don't know what that's about. Snookums. What in the world does that even mean? Does anyone know what that means? Snookums. Sorry if I'm... I might be giving you guys some, some, some hints here. Here's some good names. Baby doll. When I think of doll, I think of something that's stationary and rigid. Does not, it just has one expression. No personality. What a compliment. Baby doll. Muffin. A bit of flour, a bit of egg, and a bit of sugar. Hmm. Ducky. Waterfowl. That's what I think of. Baby cakes. Whatever that is. Pudding. Slop. That's what, essentially what that is. Snuffleupagus. If you're not acquainted with Sesame Street, it's a big hairy elephant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope that no one uses that one. 
Smoopy. Smoopy. Here's the personal favourite. It's not really a symbol of anything. It's hey you. Um, booger. And tap or faucet. You know, obviously derived from that text in Proverbs about a contentious wife is like a dripping tap. Don't use that one, males. Obviously, they aren't literal names that you would call your spouse. That last one or those last three that I shared. But we have names of endearment that we use towards those in whom we love. I woke up in the middle of the night when Rosie and myself... Actually, I didn't wake up. I was still asleep. And I started calling her a pet name, which was Chookums. Chookums. I cuddled her and I said, oh, Chookums. You're my Chookums. Weird. We all have pet names for each other. Or we may think of someone, we think of this. Jesus has pet names for his church. The church is the object of Christ's supreme desire. And we see this in Revelation chapter 12. We see God's church described as a woman. Before I explain what the woman is and what the woman represents, we should read the text. So Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2, let's read the scripture. It says this. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So here we see this picture in Revelation of a woman, a woman who's clothed in the sun, a woman that is standing upon the moon, and on this woman's head she has a crown of how many stars? 12 stars. Obviously this is not literal. Because this would be a very interesting picture if it was literal. It is symbolic. It is how Christ sees his church. Now let me make this point before I advance any further. When you think of the church, when you think of God's church, do you think of it as pure and holy and high and lifted up and faultless? When you look at Revelation chapter 3 and you see the church in Laodicea, you see anything but that. But when Christ sees his people, he doesn't see them as they are. He sees them as they can be. And I'm going to show you something really cool. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about Jesus' church as a woman. A woman is a symbol of God's church, and that makes sense. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself constantly in the parables that he shares as the bridegroom or the husband and the church his bride. In the Old Testament, we see this theme constantly being revealed as God is talking about Old Testament Israel as committing harlotry or adultery with the nations thereabout. Turn with me. Keep your finger in Revelation here. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians just to bring this out and emphasize this a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. Ephesians 5, 31. The scriptures read this, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In this text, the parallels are the woman is a representation of who? The church. And the man is a representation of who? Christ. Christ in his church, and then you get that awesome text in Ephesians which says, and Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, for you, 
for us. The church isn't a building, but the church is people. Those who are called out of the world, those who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is that good news, church? Here we see the church represented, and the church is clothed in what? It's clothed in the sun. Now, you think about this. What is the sun? What is the sun of righteousness? When I read my Bible, it tells me that my righteousness is but filthy rags. Obviously, the church is not clothed in its own works, its own efforts, its own deeds, its own character, but rather everything that has to do with Jesus. The church is a reflection or a representation of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Turn with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, last book, last book of the Old Testament. We see this explicitly stated. Now, the reason why we're looking at this is I don't want you to take my word for it. We're going to jump to the scriptures and see it so there. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Okay. Scriptures read this. But to you who fear my name, this is talking about God's people, the son of righteousness, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Who is the son of righteousness? Who is the only one that is righteous? There is no one righteous on earth. There is one who is righteous, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is the thing. God's church is clothed in whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. You know, when your girl is cold and you have a jumper on, what will you do if you're a good partner? Will you watch her shiver and be cold? Or will you give her your jumper? Will you give her your jacket? You will. I remember when I gave Rosie one of my jumpers, I actually gave her my year 12 jersey with my name on the back. Why do you reckon I did that? Because she's mine. She's my girl. And she was cold, but she's my girl. And I got so much pride seeing her walking around with my name on her back. Or my jumper on her back. Why? Because she's my girl. Whose jacket is the church wearing? Jesus's. Do you think Jesus is proud of us wearing his righteousness? Do you think that he's pumped by it? Do you think it excites him? Do you think he's happy that we are identified as his? 100%. More so than what I am towards Rosie. Infinitely more. She's standing on the moon. Now, this is a tricky one. The moon in the Old Testament is commonly used in reference to month to month, new moon to new moon. So it's like a monthly thing. Now, the woman is standing on the month. It doesn't mean that she's standing literally on January. It means more than that. When you look at the Old Testament, you see God's people standing on a firm foundation. The firmest foundation that you could get back then wasn't concrete. What was it? It was a rock. In Psalms chapter 40 and verse 2, I want to read this text to you. It feels like we're just rattling out a whole heap of text this morning, but this is important. We're getting somewhere. 
Psalms chapter 40 and verse 2, this is what the psalmist says. He says this, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit and out of miry clay. Now, is miry clay a firm foundation? It's shifting, isn't it? It sinks. So he's taking me from a movable foundation, and look at what happens here in the rest of the text, and set my feet upon a rock and establish my steps. Okay? So God takes his people, God takes his bride, and when you look at the, the, the book of Hosea, God calls Hosea to marry Goma, who is a prostitute, a harlot. He takes this woman out of the miry clay and puts her on a firm foundation. Isn't that cool? Has God done that for you? Has God taken you out of the miry clay where you were hopeless and given you a hope? Has God taken you out of a place where you had no peace and you had no rest and he has given you rest? Yes, he does that and he does that very well. So God's people are taken out of the pit, taken out of the miry clay. You just get the imagery there and they're put on a firm foundation. What is this foundation, church? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. No other foundation can be laid that has been laid, that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Church, I want you to think about it for a moment. When you think of this world and you think of foundations and things that are everlasting and things that are immovable, can you think of anything that is of this world that is of that nature? When you think about the financial structures of the world, when you think about the natural you know, beauty that we see outside, when you think of all these things, and when you even think of your own lives, it comes and goes, doesn't it? But one thing and one thing alone stands forever, and that is God himself. Jesus is immovable. You know, and I just love the text where Jesus is talking about his words, and he says this, the wise man is the man that builds his house upon the, the rock. Because the winds will come, the waves will come, but what happens to the house? It stands firm. You've got to get your foundation right before you build. And if you're building on anything other than Jesus Christ, then you've got a shaky foundation and you're going to have problems in the future. Many people want to compromise short-term, but they experience long-term pain. Why would you settle for anything less when you can have the best in Jesus Christ? He is the rock and the church is firmly standing upon that rock. Jesus says, he who hears my words and does them is like the wise man that builds his house upon the rock church we have a rock the word made flesh right in our hands here jesus is the word the word was with god and the word was god isn't it powerful that here we find god's church having the righteousness of jesus christ standing upon the truth of his word and on her head has a crown with 12 stars. Well, I don't really need to share with you proof texts about the 12, do I? Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. New Testament, the 12 apostles. 12 is a symbolic number of God's people. And here we have Old Testament succession through to New Testament succession. God has always had a people, has he not? 
God has always had a people who will stand for his name, who will trust in the righteousness of Jesus, and who will stand upon his word and say, here it is, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Here I stand, I can do no other. And here's this woman. What a compliment. What an absolute compliment. In verse 2 of Revelation chapter 12, so we've been back to Revelation, now we've got that out of the way, trust me. We're not going to be doing any more here, there, all over the place. Okay? Even though it's good, I like to hear the pages turning in the Bible. We're going to kind of slow down a little bit. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2 to 5, I want to read these scriptures to you. It says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. The tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is this child who comes through the church? It's Jesus Christ himself. Christ becomes a man. God becomes man. And he dwells amongst us. Now I want you to think about it. Jesus comes and he's born of men. He's in the manger, in the swaddling cloth. What does Satan do next? Because this is the great controversy, isn't it? It's the battle between Christ and Satan. Would you say that a baby is vulnerable? Yeah? I get so awkward with babies. I was talking to someone about this earlier. I get so awkward when it comes, do you want to hold my baby? I'm like, oh, no, do I have to? Because I haven't had kids yet. I know it'll be completely different when I have a child, but they're just, I'm just worried about breaking it. You know what I mean? They're so fragile and small. Have you seen their fingernails? I'm so terrified of hurting it or sneezing on it or something. Jesus is a vulnerable baby. And in his most vulnerable point, Satan comes and tries to destroy him. That just shows you the nature of this battle and what's happening here. He has no preservation. There's no innocence within him. He's a liar and the father of lies. And look at what happens. In the book of Matthew, it says, Then Herod was exceedingly angry and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem from two years old and under. Symbolically, that's what's been spoken of here. The dragon representing Satan himself, obviously. But did Satan come personally, visit the manger or the stable, go to the manger of Jesus and then try to destroy him? Is that how Satan works? He uses a medium. He uses a guise. And the guise that he used here was Herod under the Roman Empire because Herod was a vassal king chosen by the Roman Empire. It was actually a common thing for the Roman, Romans to have dragons on their standards and on their shields. The pagan Roman Empire, Empire had dragons on their shields and on their standards. It was a common thing. Actually, when I was going through the museum in the Vatican, it's still a common thing. There's a picture of the Pope, and then there's a dragon underneath him, as a symbol even today. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't need to say any more about that. 
what's happening here with Jesus and Satan in Jesus' infancy is really a fulfillment of this promise in Genesis. The first messianic promise given to the church between the woman and Satan. This is addressed to Satan himself. God says, I will put enmity and hostility between you, devil, and the woman or the church. And between your seed, Satan, and her seed. See the capital S there? Not that that was in the original Hebrew, but this is talking about Jesus who would come through the church. As soon as Jesus was born, Satan was onto the task trying to rub him out. But was Jesus victorious? Was he victorious? Are we glad he's victorious? Jesus ascends to heaven. He conquers Satan. He vanquishes Satan. He ascends to heaven and it says that he's in heaven with a rod of iron. Who has a scepter? A king has a scepter. And what is being used here in Revelation chapter 12 when talking about the rod of iron, they're borrowing the language from Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 and 9. I think we should turn there, just to keep everyone awake. Let's go there. Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. This is what the psalmist says. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does that sound like familiar language concerning Jesus? Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Who had ownership over the earth before Jesus came? Next time we pick up in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to find out who it was. It wasn't Jesus. Satan was the prince of this world as Jesus addressed him. Jesus comes back and Satan is repossessed. Forcefully. Well, not forcefully, but he loses it. He loses his dominion. He loses his authority. Jesus is now our representative in the heavenly places. He has a scepter. He rules nations. He rules the nations. This text will be fulfilled when he comes back again, ultimately. But he reigns even today. You know, there is a battle going on even today. Even though Jesus has conquered Satan at the cross, the battle still rages, does it not? Do you sometimes feel as if you're caught up in this battle? Yeah? Does it sometimes come to your doorstep? Do you sometimes feel as if you're just having a real bad day? Did you expect anything less? I mean, when you gave your life to Jesus, did you expect everything to be easy? You know, when we give our lives to God, he gives us rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus gives us rest. And how good is his rest, church? Is it complete? His rest is complete. His rest is absolute. And his rest is entirely in the person of himself. If you know Jesus, you know what rest really is. Does that still make it easy? I mean, you remember, you know, Paul when he says, you know, there was a thorn in my flesh. 
and he prays three times for it to be removed. When you give your life to Jesus, there is a big target painted on your back. And guess who's going to come and try to assail you? Satan's coming. But greater, greater is he who is with us than he who is in this world. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. You may feel as if you are perplexed. You may feel as if you are persecuted. You may feel as if you are downtrodden. But Christ is victor and he's on the throne the last time I checked. We may feel as if we are defeated now, but there will come a day, church, where he will wipe away every tear from every eye and he will come to you and give you a victor's crown and says, reign with me. What's a bit of pain in the meantime? When Jesus is with you in the midst of the fire, he never leaves you, he never forsakes you. We shouldn't expect it to be easy, but what you should definitely expect is for him to be faithful along the way from beginning to end. His eye never wanders from you. And although the war has been won by Jesus' death on the cross, the battle still rages, and we all know that. D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, as British and American troops stormed the beaches of Normandy. After some intense fighting and casualties, they won the beach, and they pushed back the, the Nazi Germany forces, from that day, they knew that the war was theirs. They knew it, but was the war over yet? They hadn't made it to Berlin yet. A year later, they signed, well, the German official Hitler had, had killed himself. They actually signed the treaty, the, the German Nazis, they signed the treaty. And even then, you know, there was still Japan. You know what I mean? So even though D-Day happened, church, there was still a little bit of time before it was completely finished. D-Day happened for us at the cross. But V-Day, when they sign the treaty, is when Jesus returns again. We're in the in-between. Don't worry. Satan's done. He's finished. He is a roaring lion, yes, seeking whom he may devour. But Christ is stronger and Christ is victorious. Turn with me back to Revelation chapter 12. Sorry, I was getting a bit excited there. I think it's a good thing. Revelation 12. We shift our attention from Jesus and Jesus' victory now to the church. Satan realizes that Jesus has conquered him. And Satan now realizes that he can't get Jesus anymore. So who naturally is Satan going to turn his attention, his energies towards? That which Jesus loves the most. His girl, us, who's wearing his jacket and who's standing upon his words and his people from ages past to ages future. Satan's always been antagonistic towards them, hasn't he? Look at what happens in the text. Chapter 12 and verse 13. It says this, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Was the Christian church persecuted? In the first century, it was persecuted firstly by Jews, secondly by pagans. And by the end of the first century, there are estimates of two and a half million Christians who had been killed as a result of their faith in Jesus. 
Two and a half million. It's remarkable, isn't it? So it went from the Jews to the pagans and eventually the church. That's how the persecution progressed. Okay? Look at this just here. Jump with me down to verse 14, the very next verse. It says this. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Okay? With that in mind, church, we jump a few passages before to verse 6. It says virtually the same thing in just a little bit different language. Let's read it. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? 1,260 days. So there's a woman. The woman is escaping. She's going into the wilderness, and there's a time period attached. Over previous weeks that we've come and studied church, we have seen this time period pop up time after time after time, have we not? We have. It's manifested in many different ways. 42 months, 1,260 days, and who knows what the last one is? Times, times, and half a time. We know that times, times, and half a time is exactly the same thing as 1,260 days because of these two verses that we just read. The same events, the same sequence, different demonstrations of the time period, but they're both the same. Up on the screen here, we see the fulfillment of this. This is the church in the wilderness. Okay? I haven't communicated up to this point as to how we know it began at this point. In 538, essentially what happens is as Rome is crumbling down, there's a realization that in order to preserve what was left of the Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire, they would have to shift their headquarters to the east, to Constantinople. So the emperor does that. And who does he leave in charge of Rome? None other than the bishop of Rome, the pope of Rome. And in order to establish his power and his might, there's intense persecutions that happened around this time. And by the end of 538 AD, there were three groups of people that were entirely eradicated. Genocide. They're the Ostrogoths, there were the Vandals, and there were the Heruli. Completely wiped off. I want to read to you some statements about what happened at this time. This is what the Bishop of Rome felt himself to be in 538. He felt himself to be the vicegerent of the Almighty to rule the world and bring it all to the service of Christ. Okay, well, there's a bit of positive in there. There's a little bit of negative in there as well. Positive being sharing Jesus with people, but I don't know how you do that, being the Almighty to rule the world. Anyways, he strengthened the existing laws against pagans, Jews, and heretics. Many were burnt, or magistrates and soldiers had to swear that they were Catholics. Many agents were straightaway sent out to all parts of the empire everywhere to force whomsoever they met to renounce the faith of his forefathers. Hereupon there were many put to death at the hands of the persecuting faction. From this time forth, nothing was to be seen in the Roman Empire except massacres and fights. Isn't that interesting? From 538 AD, and when we jump to Revelation chapter 13, you actually find that this is fulfilled in 1798. Just store this in your mind for a later date. Right on time. Isn't God's word remarkable? 
So God predicts, God foresees. He doesn't foreordain. But he sees that which will come upon his people and he warns them of things that will happen. Why? Because he wants to prepare us. And it wasn't the first time, church, that God's people had gone into the wilderness, was it? When Stephen is talking about the Israelite church, look what he says. This is he who is in the congregation. The word there for congregation is the same word that you would have for church in the wilderness. This is talking about the Israelites in their wandering. It's really cool. You may not be as excited as what I am about that. Look at this. The wilderness church, as we have just read, the woman flees into the wilderness from the presence of the serpent. The story of the Israelites in their exodus, the Israelites leave Egypt. As the woman flees into the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12, the serpent pursues her. As the Israelites leave Egypt, does Pharaoh pursue them? He pursues them into the wilderness. God delivers his church in Revelation 12 on eagles what? On eagles' wings. In Exodus chapter 19, after the Israelites have gone through the Red Sea, they're now at Sinai, God says this to them, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God feeds his church. It says that he feeds or he nourishes them for 1,260 years. Does God feed the Israelites in the wilderness? Does he feed them the whole time they're in the wilderness? He does. Isn't it remarkable? I want to share with you guys a few stories about the wilderness and God's church. There was a group of people in northern Italy called the Waldenses, and I've shared with them briefly in my sermons. They were persecuted by the dragon relentlessly. They were near the French Alps, French-Italian Alps on the border there. And the armies of Rome, papal Rome, were offering or coming towards them and persecuting them relentlessly. And there was actually decrees made that anyone who would join the effort to eradicate the Waldenses or bring them into line would receive complete forgiveness or remission of sins, would receive lands and prestige from the church. Is that right or wrong? Yeah, okay, good. It's wrong. So basically there was crusade after crusade after these people. And the more that they were pursued, the higher they went up the mountains, the further along they went, the valleys. It's like God had provided a fortress for them in the wilderness. And there were times as if it seemed as if they were going to be destroyed. And they were cornered in specific places, but then all of a sudden, on a clear day just like today with the blue sky out, the fog descended upon the armies coming and they actually crawled under the legs of those who were assailing them to safety. Isn't that remarkable? A church in the wilderness. God was feeding, God was nourishing them with his word. The Spanish Armada. In the 1500s, I think it was. English, English rule was largely Protestant at this time. 
So the Spanish Armada was given, I guess, the command. Uh, There's a number of other reasons, political reasons, but basically they wanted to take Queen Elizabeth off the throne, I think it was, and they wanted to replace her with a Catholic monarch. So there was a strong fleet of Spanish ships coming to do the work with the army on board, entirely outnumbering the English. But guess who wins? The English do. Against all odds. And you want to know why they won? There's a few reasons. One of the main reasons was the weather. The wind was blowing unfavorably for the Spanish Armada and very favorably for the English. And not many ships made it back home from the Armada. And in Plymouth, there's this statue which remembers it. It says, he blew with his wind and they were scattered. Who blew? (laughs) The, the The king of Spain says, I went forward to fight against men. I didn't know that I was fighting against God. Isn't it interesting? The church in the wilderness was protected. doesn't mean that they weren't persecuted and some of them didn't die. Many of them did. But still God has his hand over events and he's making sure that a group of people will make it through to the end. We talked very briefly last week about the the church in the wilderness and I was talking a little bit about um, the Huguenots. Does anyone remember the Huguenots? The followers of John Calvin in France... When we were at the Huguenot Museum, do you know what they call their, do you know what they call the, um, the Huguenots, this museum? They call it the Church of the Desert, or the Church of the Wilderness. And they have this symbol which represents who they are as a people. This is their cross, and does anyone see what's at the top of the cross? There's an eagle with wings. Do you think they knew where they were in prophetic history? Do you think they understood their Bibles? Do you reckon they could say, yeah, this is probably where we are right now? Do you think they were ashamed to say, you know what, we are the church of the wilderness? Were they ashamed to go out and say, you know what, we are being persecuted by the dragon? That's the dragon. We're the church in the wilderness and this is where we are. Do you think they were ashamed of that? They weren't ashamed of that. Here's a picture of them as well. You can hardly see this. This is from the museum. That's the preacher just there in a rocky cavern preaching to his followers in the wilderness. Very, very clear just here. Why all of this? Well, number one, church, Satan is threatened by God's truth. Full stop. Because who is an embodiment of the truth? Christ. Does truth expose error? Absolutely. Who's the father of lies? Satan. Any truth is a direct attack upon Satan himself. Satan is threatened by truth because truth directly and completely reveals who he is. Is Satan threatened by you? When you woke up this morning... Was saying like, oh no, they're awake again. You know what I mean? Was like, oh man, Rosie, she's up again. She's gonna be singing worship songs in church. Or Ashley, oh man, he's gonna be preaching today. I don't know if Satan's threatened by me. I hope that he's threatened by the God in me. And I ask and pray. All of you guys here today, when you think about your life, are you a threat to the kingdom of Satan? 
My Bible tells me that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. They will prevail against individuals, and they have time after time after time. Satan is not threatened of those who think they are strong, who think that they know Scripture, who think that they are involved in church in this capacity or that capacity, etc., etc. Satan is threatened by those who have a deep confiding trust in the Lord and are willing to go wherever he sends. Those who realize that the highest place to which they can ascend is kneeling at the cross of Jesus Christ himself. The Christian life isn't one of position. It isn't one of success. It isn't one of victory or personal glory or attainment. You're not going to be running around the streets of gold in heaven with your crown saying, look how good my crown is, everyone. It's all because of Jesus, and it will always be because of Jesus. It was never about you, and it will never be about you. It's always him. When I wake up in the morning, I am a threat to Satan's kingdom because Jesus lives here. And if Jesus lives here, that means there's no room for him. And you are a direct threat upon his kingdom. But that itself puts a bit of a target on your back. But as we said before, he who has looked after his church in the wilderness will so look after you. Trust in him. Follow him. In Revelation chapter 12, as we kind of wrap this thing up, verses 15 to 16, the scriptures read, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. There are two symbols that are used here in this text to describe Satan. Did anyone capture what they were? One's in verse 15. One's in verse 16. When you find it, Shout it out. What's the first one? Serpent. What's the second one? Dragon. Both of them are symbols of Satan. When you think of their use in Scripture, the serpent, where do we find the serpent popping up? What's the first scene that you find Satan as a serpent? Garden of Eden. Did he force Eve to eat the fruit? What did he do? He deceived dragon is a dragon powerful does a dragon exhibit force for those who don't obey absolutely we see the two strategies that satan uses to get his god's people deception and persecution now i'm going to ask you a question right now and this was kind of like when i was doing my preparing this this sermon i was thinking man i never looked at it that way what are you more afraid of church Persecution or deception? Both. For most of the Christians I talk to, they think, oh man, when the time of trouble comes, persecution, flee to the mountains. Have you heard of that? Oh, it's going to be so bad. And it will be. You want to know something? You can see persecution coming. 
You can see it happening. Deception. You may be deceived and you don't even know it. It's true, isn't it? The church has always fared well with persecution. The blood of martyrs was seed to the church. The church has never fared well with deception. I'll give you a case example. The early church. Persecution, did it stop the message or did it spread the message? Spread it. Deception comes in. What happened to the message? Dark ages. The church has never went well with deception. And it never will. Because you don't know that you're deceived. Persecution? Hmm. You could see it coming. We should be more worried about deception than persecution. And what does Satan do here as the serpent and as the dragon? He spews what forward? Water. You read the Psalms, and I've got it in my text just here, but I'm not going to go to it because we're running out of time. When you read Psalms 124, verses 2 to 4, 2 to 5, it talks about floods. David's saying, the waters are coming up to my neck. Has anyone heard those texts before? He's talking about the enemies of God coming after him. The waters are coming up to my neck. Save me, O Lord, from the flood. The flood is a symbol for persecution and the enemies coming against God's people. So I want to show you just up on the screen here, just, I guess, a visual representation of the church in the wilderness. Here we have the Celtic Christians in Britain. Right here, we have the Christians in Thrace that were destroyed by 538 AD. Here we have the Ostrogoths were completely wiped off the map in 538 AD. While Denzies in Torripolici in northern, northern Italy, we have just here the Cathars, southwestern France. We have the Lollards, the followers of John Wycliffe, who were persecuted and destroyed. Here we have the Protestants who were destroyed during the, the Spanish Inquisition. Here we have the Hussites, the followers of Jan Hus. This is the church in the wilderness. Here we have the Lutherans from the Protestant Reformation. There we have the Reformed Swiss Church from the Protestant Reformation. Here we have virtually the entire you know, Dutch nation. And there we have the Huguenots, who were, many of them were persecuted, the church in the desert. And we have the Covenanters in Scotland. 18,000 of them were killed. And there's more of them that were killed throughout that whole map. Can you see that the church of the wilderness was quite extensive? Very extensive. But the greatest manifestation of the church in the wilderness was when a new land opened up and the pilgrim fathers settled on the Mayflower in North America. I'm going to show you something really cool. As they crossed the ocean and settled in America, guess what they saw themselves doing? They saw themselves directly fulfilling prophecy. Cool. Do you think they were ashamed? It gave them strength. If one place was more distinguished than another, this is a theologian at this time. Look what he says. As affording shelter for the woman, I suspect it was North America, where the church of Christ has been nourished and may continue to be nourished during the remainder of the 1,260 years. Have we just read about that? Wow. Look at this. The chief purpose of their errand into the wilderness. I just love that language. This is what this dude called his sermon, an errand into the wilderness. 
Okay, Rose, I'm going to go get some milk. I'll be back soon. Their picture was this. The wilderness experience for the Christian church was temporary. And at the end of the 1,260 years, they would be free from their wilderness. The errand into the wilderness meant that they were coming back out. Isn't that cool? The chief purpose of their errand into the wilderness was, as one settler preached, simply the enjoyment of the pure worship of God because they couldn't do that. Some cited the example of the woman who in the book of Revelation was sheltered by God in the wilderness while heaven was torn apart with wool. Crazy, eh? They weren't ashamed, they believed, and they preached at church. They weren't ashamed where they were in Bible prophecy, which brings me to my last point. The very last point in Revelation chapter 12 is verse 17. Just before the second coming of Jesus, we look back on the annals of history, church history, and we've seen the church in the wilderness. Actually, even before that, we've seen God's Old Testament church represented by the the crown with the 12 stars, the 12 tribes, to the apostles, the church in the wilderness, going over to America, right through the end of the wilderness time, we see God's final representation in verse 17 before his soon return. Let's read this verse. And the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. Satan was enraged with the woman. Who's the woman? The church. Now, when I read that text, I just want to reinforce to you again that this woman has Christ's righteousness, is standing upon his word, is a succession from Old Testament to New Testament church. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. The word there, rest, can be translated as remnant, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's seven points concerning the remnant just before Jesus comes. It arises after the wilderness experience. Remember, the errand into the wilderness. I'm going to go get some milk, honey. I'll be back. Wilderness period finishes 1798, and out of that comes this final embodiment of people at the end. 1798. It's a minority, remnant, small, survivors. That's what it means. Apostolic. It's remaining or it's surviving and it's cut from the same cloth as the original, that which was. We see that by what the woman's dressed in and standing on. It's unpopular. How do you know it's unpopular, Ashley? Well, Satan's angry with it. And when you flick on the TV or you look on the news, whose world is this really? It's Satan's world. He's having a field day out there. God's church will be unpopular. Why? Because it preaches truth. Is truth ever popular? The Bible says that it keeps the commandments. Whenever you see the word commandments in the book of Revelation, it's always talking about the ten. Let's just go through them quickly. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or the things under the earth. You shall not use my name in vain. We might skip the fourth one because that's not relevant today, apparently. We'll go to number five. Honour your mother and your father. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Kids, thou shalt not. 
bear false witness, and adults, and 10, thou shalt not covet. Are those commandments still binding for the Christian? Should we abide with? What about the fourth one? That's the awkward one, isn't it? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your servant, nor your maidservant, nor your ox, nor the stranger which is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas, and he rested. Church, they're all binding. Because when God gave the Ten Commandments, what did he do? He wrote them with his finger. The only instance that we find God writing with his finger is the Ten Commandments and when he pronounces destruction upon Babylon. If God was giving you a document that was signed by his very own hand, he didn't even trust Moses to write it. Do you think it was going to be important? 100%. So God's church is faithful to the entirety of his commands, even the ones that don't make sense. It makes sense not to murder it makes sense not to bow down to a graven image because you've made it with your own hands. All of them make sense but the Sabbath commandment. But God just says, I want you to trust what I say because when I say something, it should be enough. And this point about commandment keeping is very, very interesting because remember the woman is clothed in what? The righteousness of Jesus. It's not commandment keeping for the sake of sake of earning God's favor it's already received Christ's favor with the garment that he's given see that comes before commandment keeping in the text God's people are commandment keepers why because the spirit of God abides in them he rests upon them and then he lives through them Jesus says if you love me keep my commandments they also have a prophetic gift the testimony of Jesus Christ John was sent to the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1 because he preached the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was a prophet. God's people at the end, it says in Revelation 19 verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit. Does anyone know what it is? Spirit of prophecy. Oh, that's a dirty word. The spirit of prophecy. This movement believes the prophetic message outlined in the book of Revelation. It sees where it is in the timeline. It sees where we have been, where we are, and where we're going. And it is unashamed of it, and it will preach it, it will testify of it. But even more than that, church, it believes in the gift of prophecy even today as manifested in the life and gift and ministry of Ellen G. White. That's a characteristic point of the remnant in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It believes in the second coming. How do I believe that? Well, it's right at the end of the churches before Jesus comes. Here's your seven points. We have nothing to be ashamed about, church, with the message that we bear. And when I look at the Bible, God's remnant, he's always had one. Noah and his family, eight hopped onto the ark. Lot, well, four of them left Sodom. Three of them survived. Think of another example. Children of Israel who went into the promised land, two families out of the whole generation 
one tribe came back from exile. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, did he have the 5,000 men that he taught and fed? He was alone. Bar for Mary, his mum, John. Church, the remnant has always been small. As people, we like crowds, we like popularity, we like to be where it feels good. Sin feels good. Just because something feels right doesn't mean that it is right. What God has said, what God has done, and what God is doing is what we should believe in. We should not be ashamed. I challenge those, and I don't know if there is any here, but given the message that we have preached, this has to be firm. If you have left the message intellectually, I want you to go to your Bibles when you get home, open the Scriptures and study those things again. I challenge you to do so. For those who leave intellectually, when things get tough, as we see in the example of God's people throughout the ages, they simply fade away. May it not be so for you. May we study to show ourselves approved. May we be ashamed for nothing. Definitely not the truth. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much that our triumph is in Jesus. Absolutely, completely. When we see the church, we see nothing of ourselves other than the fact that we are the church. Our righteousness is yours. Our foundation is yours. The word in which we are to proclaim is yours. The history, Father, that we bear is yours. May we not be ashamed of it. Mm. May we not be ashamed of how you led your people in times past through the wilderness of Sinai, the apostolic movement through the preaching of Jesus' death and resurrection, the church that was hunted and persecuted throughout the dark ages. And Father, the church in which we are standing in today, Lord, may we not be ashamed of the message that we bear. May we believe it. May we proclaim it. And may we live it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.